Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the second episode of the On Deeper Reflection podcast. Today we're going to discuss a little bit more about getting things done. When I did the first episode on this, I think like two years ago, uh, the response was really excellent. People really seemed to like discussing this stuff. They really seemed to get a lot out of uh, the suggestions that came out of that book as filtered through me. And I'm going to be giving a talk about getting things done at a conference in New York City this week. So I've been thinking about it a lot, and I wanted to share some of those thoughts and hear from you and uh, what you've discovered in your own lives that uh, may feed back to me and make my life better. So there you go. Let's get into it. So the first part of this, and this is these are all just like kind of random thoughts on GTD. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go to the original episode. But the first thing, the first topic to talk about is deciding on opportunities. Life in medicine is uh, pretty much a continuous exposure to opportunities. Now, some of these opportunities are thrust upon you. Your boss tells you, get this done. Some of these opportunities are uh, optional. Some are not even opportunities if you don't phrase them that way in your head, though you probably should phrase everything you could be doing as an opportunity uh, because then you could actually put it into your decision-making process as to whether it's a good one or not. And so the first thing I want to talk about in the Deciding on Opportunities section of this podcast is uh, the concept of present you versus future you. And I, I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned this on MCRIT. I think I mentioned it in a blog post on someone else's blog at some point. But we make a lot of decisions for future us. We write checks in the present that in the future our future iteration can't cash. And what do I mean by this? Well, okay, you, you send me an opportunity to speak somewhere across the world, you know, 20-hour flight in a place I've never been before, let's say Singapore, somewhere I really want to go. And I look at that, and I'm like, wow, this is all, this is all net good. I, I love speaking. Uh, I've never been to Singapore. I want to go. And I'm just like, let's say yes. And then when the event actually comes, I realize I have like, 30 other things I'm doing. Uh, it's in a really long plane flight. I've had to, over the past two weeks, prepare a talk that I've never done before and put in all of the time for that. I've been thinking about that talk for four weeks uh, before that, and for months it's in the back of my mind that I should think about it. And then I realized the prep time and the recovery time, and I'm not sure if it was the best best opportunity. And, and yet it seems great in the present, because in the present, all you think about is all of the net good. You don't think about what it's actually going to be like when you get there. And so your present self is, is making, is locking your future self into things that you're not really sure about. Now, how do you counter this, this bias? The way you counter it is, you imagine that whatever opportunity you're considering is going to happen in two days. So instead of considering it's happening a year from now, two days. And then you, you start really getting into the mindset that will allow you to make real decisions. Because if I had to decide right now, do I want to go to Singapore in two days at this stage, as this year is going, no. No. Uh, that, that would be really tough to fit in. Now, Two years from now, yes, the answer is probably assuredly yes, but I don't know for sure. But what I know is two days from now, I wouldn't want to be doing this, and which means eight months from now, chances are pretty good that I'm going to start looking at that as a burden instead of an opportunity. And 
I'm going to evaluate it differently. So that, that's step one on deciding on opportunities, present you versus future you. Step two is the Petri Triangle. Now, this was sent to me by my friend and you know airway philosopher, George Kovach. And George really thinks deeply about stuff, and that's why I love him. And this was actually from his department chair, gent by the name of Dr. Petrie. And it's a triangle, and you can see it in the show notes. I actually made it into a graphic. Uh, it was just sent to me in words by George. But uh, the Petri triangle, you know, the three sides of the triangle are, side one, is the opportunity enjoyable and interesting to you? Side two, will the opportunity make society or the world a better place? And then side three, is the opportunity compensated or improves the quality of life of you or your family? So basically, when you're evaluating opportunities, they should always, if you're going to say yes, fulfill two out of the three. And you really should be shooting for three out of three if you could get there. Now, some opportunities you'll take that are just one out of three. And if that's the case, then they must have an enormous value on that side of the triangle. Now, if you pay me $40,000 to give a talk somewhere, chances are pretty good that I will really consider that opportunity, even if the topic is not particularly interesting and doesn't make society a better place. Now, I, I say consider, the answer still may not be yes, because it's only one side of the triangle. But, you know, that's a pretty big side. On the other hand, uh, you know, for low compensation, unless it fulfills at least two, if not three, uh, it's probably not going to happen. Now, when the two sides are enjoyable, interesting, and making the world a better place, then it's easier to sell when those sides are small. But evaluating things through the lens of this triangle, not to mix metaphors, uh, really, I think, is helpful. And this, this is actually a great tool. Think about that. Think uh, what opportunities you're accepting if they make two out of three, and how many of the three out of threes like just truly uh, left you feeling wonderful versus the ones out of threes. So that, that's, that's the second step of deciding on opportunities. Now, the third step that helps the previous two is time tracking and time forecasting. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, we really have a bad capability at estimating how long things we do actually take. And it doesn't get necessarily better even if you've done these things because your brain just eliminates all of the uh, like just fiddly little steps of things. And we're left just with the big parts. You know, I have to give a grand rounds talk. Okay, well, you know, that's going to take an hour. And, you know, but it'll be an afternoon because, you know, I actually have to give the talk and all the time around it and then get to the airport. And yeah, I have to travel out the day beforehand and, uh, you know, because I want to go dinner with the residents. So that'll, you know, probably mean me leaving in the morning. Okay. So grand rounds are a, a day and a half time expenditure, which of course, anyone who's done it knows is an absolute lie. That's not the time it takes at all. So actually tracking how long things take could be an immensely powerful tool in deciding whether they're taking opportunity. Like, for instance, grand rounds when you legitimately write everything down. Well, there's the email back and forth to set things up. And then there's the email back and forth about your objectives for your lecture and CME questions. And then the back and forth about travel arrangements and where you're going to stay. And then 
the back and forth of actually booking that travel. And then, you know, it's the entire talk presentation itself. Well, maybe you've already had that talk. Well, yeah, but you got to change it a little bit. You got to update it. Well, okay, so that's, that's three hours. And then, you know, wow, I don't really remember uh, exactly what I said at these various parts. I always keep video recordings of my previous talk, so better watch that. Okay, well, that's another hour. And then uh, the day before leaving on one of these trips is kind of burnt from the productivity standpoint uh, because I got to pack. I have to uh, set all my affairs in order for being gone for two days. And uh, I kind of don't get any creative work done the day before I leave for a trip. Okay, so let's block off that day. And then uh, you get back. Well, the day after, you have to make up for all the things you were supposed to do in those two days. You're not really checking all those emails the same way you would. You're not really getting stuff done. Okay, so uh, one-day recovery. So Grand Rounds is basically that one-hour talk is somewhere between four and five days of actual time lost to other things. And when you actually write that down for yourself and you think, huh, do I have four days to spend on these Grand Rounds? You say to yourself, hmm, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe I'm going to say no. Or maybe I'll say yes differently. Maybe I'll give a video Grand Rounds and I'll make that video Grand Rounds a Q&A with no prep time at all, which actually I think the residents getting those video Grand Rounds like better than a lecture by a, uh, by a long shot. Okay, well, that's no prep time. Yeah, I, that morning that I gave that video Grand Rounds is actually burnt. Okay, but that's a morning. Could I give up a morning or, you know, four hours of the afternoon because, you know, you got to set everything up and then you give it and then you got to kind of recover. But okay, three, four hours. Yeah, I could do that. Let's, let's, let's say yes to that. And this, this goes for everything. Uh, do you know how much time it takes you to write a paper or write the actual article uh, for a study you've done? And if you don't, then you're going to forget how arduous it actually was. Review article. Okay, well, I could bang one of those out. Well, maybe you can, but probably you can't. Probably you should actually track how long that takes. Each week I put up a podcast or a we, and I keep forgetting just how long that actually takes because there's so many like faffy little details that need to get accounted for. Okay, well, I know now because I've written it down how long a podcast really takes to get up, which doesn't even account for how long it takes to do. But time tracking and forecasting can be an immensely powerful tool. Also, now this, the second part of this is actually tracking what you do in a week because what this will let you know is just how long you spend on Facebook, how long you spend uh, just messing around in the deep, hellish hole that is YouTube and going from video to video watching. If you spend two weeks just tracking every minute of your day and where it goes and what you're actually doing, uh, the, the insights that come from that could be very life-altering. So I recommend time tracking from those two perspectives. All right, the last part of deciding on opportunities is the concept of opportunity cost. And this is such a powerful concept in all parts of life, work, etc. Because everything you do is at the expense of something else, whether it be from time or money. Uh, this is where all the quality assurance stuff at the national level goes so awry because uh, they'll tell you every pneumonia patient needs to be given antibiotics within four hours. Okay, well, that sounds like a great concept, except 
Optimizing those pneumonia patients is at the expense of other patients. Optimizing stroke is at the expense of other things. Buying an entitled auction monitor is at the expense of other things you could buy. Everything has an opportunity cost. And when you take an opportunity offered to you, you're saying no to all sorts of other opportunities just by the fact that you've already committed yourself to something. If you agree to write a paper, uh, it's going to take a lot of time from your ability to write a chapter in a book or vice versa or spend time with your family. Everything has an opportunity cost. And we don't think about that. And this goes back to the present self, future self is part of that problem is not understanding the opportunity cost of things. So for everything you're going to do, not only ask yourself, well, do I like this? Does it fit the Petri triangle? But is this going to be at the expense of something I would have liked to do more? Because many things we say yes to do fulfill two sides of the Petri triangle, and yet they don't fulfill it as strongly as other things. Now, you know, you could get in the trap of saying no to everything by that uh, estimation, and that's also bad. But consider the opportunity cost of everything you do. Now, a similar to opportunity decision discussion is one on deciding on goals. And now this relates to one of the most potent parts of getting things done, which is the yearly review. Now, you know, if you've listened to my podcast, that reviews were probably what David Allen would say are, you know, the most important part of GTD. And I do a daily review, figuring out what's happening the next day, a weekly review, uh, estimating the things that are going to be happening over the next week, quarterly, where you kind of figure out where your uh, projects are going. And then the yearly review is when you're supposed to decide on your life goals, on the things that you actually want to accomplish in the next year or two. And George Kovach, again, sent me something very interesting on this. And it's a Japanese concept or philosophy called Aikigai. And uh, you really need to go to the podcast show notes to really understand this. But it's a, I guess, a rubric, a, a multiple Venn diagram type thing of deciding uh, what your goals should be. And, you know, basically there's four parts, uh, what you're good at, what you love, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. And each of those intersections between any number of those things lead to uh, various aspects of goal decisions. Uh, take a look, see what you think. Now, I'm very reluctant ever to espouse philosophies in cultures that I don't truly have a grasp of. And I'm a Japanophile, so, you know, I, I, I'd say I'm a... Uh, you know, gifted amateur on understanding this foreign culture. But uh, so I can't, you know, wholeheartedly recommend it because I'm sure some Japanese listener is going to tell me, nah, that's not really what it means. You know, this is like the glorified American vision of this, but it's not really the case. You know, uh, part of my Japanophilia was uh, the desire to be in that culture and yet be Ronin, you know, be without the collective, without the... uh, kind of forced collective good, you know, it, it, it's it always uh, to a very naive sense of Japanese culture. It seems great to be the iconoclast there, but that, that doesn't, from my Japanese friends, seem to work out so well. So uh, that, that's a uh, diversion to say, like, if, if we're getting this all wrong, espousing this as a good way of goal setting, then tell us. Tell, tell me, tell, I'll, I'll pass it on to George. But uh, this is just very interesting to look at. But setting those yearly goals, deciding what you want out of life can be incredibly potent 
to actually get those things. If you're not setting as a goal big ticket items, then they're never going to happen. And it doesn't mean they'll happen just because you make it a goal, but it becomes far more likely. If you commit the things, um, your brain subconsciously attempts to make them happen. I found this so much throughout my life that just saying I'm going to do something sets my subconscious brain on making it happen. So if you haven't done these yearly reviews, do one now. Decide where you want to be in the next three years. What, what is the idealized vision of what your life would look like three to five years from now? And uh, decide to start moving towards that path. Okay. The penultimate topic, deep work. Uh, a book I read I, when it first came out, I don't remember if that was like a year or two ago, is called Deep Work. It's by Cal Newport, someone whose blog I've been following forever. I've read all his other books. Uh, this book was game-changing for so many people I've recommended it to. And it wasn't game-changing for me solely because I've been thinking about these issues and seeing the author having brought them up on his blog for so long. But this book argues against shallow work, against so much of what we spend our time doing that doesn't really accomplish anything towards our goals or the goals of our uh, workplace or boss, because, you know, you kind of have to account for those as well. But just, I guess the perfect example for me is like, the MCRIT website itself. Well, at any given time, I have a list of like 50 things I want to fix there, make better, add functionality, and each of them would be a rat hole of hours of my life. And they'd be enjoyable hours. They really would. I like this stuff. I like being an amateur web programmer. I like figuring stuff out. There's a, there's a big sense of uh, enjoyment that comes from... Being an amateur, you know, going and researching how to do something on the web, figuring it out and getting it done, it's fun. But it accomplishes nothing. No one gives a crap about the functionality of the MCRIT site for the most part. The hours I spend there, the opportunity cost of them is against things that actually matter, against things that really fit the Petri Triangle or the Ikigai uh, Venn diagram. And yet I found, because I t track my time, that... I spend a lot of time doing this shallow work. Um, now, Cal Newport would argue that, you know, if you're doing that occasionally because you, you like it, great. But if you have goals, if you have things you want to accomplish, then deep work is what matters, like real work, work that changes the world or changes your world. And uh, if you read this book, and you should, read, read this book because I'm going to do a book club on it. Um, and I think it would be even more enjoyable if a lot of people have read it, and then I could talk about it, and then I could hear your opinion. So read Deep Work, but life-changing. Now, one of the things I took from Deep Work that I started doing was time blocking, which means if I have a day off, I'm committing to you know my academic work. It's not even a day off. If I have a non-clinical day that I'm committing to my academic work, instead of just letting it happen, I should decide ahead of time what I'm going to do and put it on my schedule as if it's an appointment. I'm going to work two hours on this paper I'm writing, or I'm going to work two hours on developing this concept for the podcast, new uh, episode. But blocking out your time and putting it on your schedule means you're committed to it. You're committed to a certain amount of time to actually do this stuff. And having it on the schedule, like an appointment, could really, I think lead to you being biased to actually get it done. Now, along those same lines is something 
some of you may have heard of, but I think most of you haven't, which is called the Pomodoro Technique. Now, the Pomodoro Technique is a way of getting into a phase of deep work. And what it is, and, you know, Pomodoro, tomato in Italian, uh, based on this tomato kitchen timer, and you don't need one of those. But what the idea is, you, you commit to what work you're going to do. And then you set a timer for 25 minutes. And you could just be your iPhone. You know, you say to Siri, you know, set a timer for 25 minutes. And during those 25 minutes, you just work on whatever you've set yourself to without checking your email, without checking Facebook, without checking Twitter, without any distractions, without getting up to see if your packages have arrived. You just do 25 minutes. And then you take a five-minute break. And then you do another 25 minutes. And then you set a five-minute break. And you do four of those. And after the four, you, you go and walk outside and you enjoy nature for 15, 30 minutes. Maybe eat lunch. Maybe you do look at Facebook or email or whatever the hell you want to do. And then you do some more of these Pomodoro blocks. But blocking off your time for deep work really lets you get in the group. One of the main things that came out of the Deep Work book is that it there's a time it takes to get into the flow state of being able to do deep work, of being able to do real work. And each time you emerge to check your email, you have to go back in. Well, you know, these 25-minute blocks could let you really immerse yourself in deep work. Now, which is not to say that timer doesn't go off sometimes and I'm so engrossed that I'll just not take the five-minute break. I'll just keep going, and I'll do another 25 minutes. There's nothing wrong with that, and I do it all the time. But just committing yourself for 25 minutes to not task-switching, to not looking at any distraction, uh, give it a shot. You'll see. You start getting into the flow, and your work becomes far more productive. All right, more information on that on the show notes. Last thing, as we're getting high in time, Getting Tactical Regarding Email. And this also came out of the Deep Work book. So much email I get is crap. And there's so much email I get every day that I just, I'm, I'm at a loss as to what to do. I could spend my entire day in the shallow work of just getting my email box back to zero. And hours of my life could be sucked up. And it's not good. Because that's not deep work. It's useless work. So, just in the hopes of making emails better. If you're going to send someone an email, and it's not just, hey, hi, I was thinking about you, I just wanted to let you know, love you, um, but it's actually offering an opportunity, offering something you need from someone. Uh, there's a few ways you can make it better. The first one is put the call to action on the top of the email. I'm writing this email because I want you to come speak at my conference. Okay, well, at least now the person could get in the mindset of, evaluating the opportunity as opposed to, uh, you know, three paragraph preamble and then you finally get to the offer and that person's had to read all that and uh, then when they finally get to them, I'm like, ah, you just wasted like five minutes of my time reading all this. So put the call to action up, up top. I want you to come speak at my conference. Then you could do all your preamble and talk about the details, blah, blah, blah. Next step, preempt the back and forths. If your whole email is because you want to meet up with someone and talk about some stuff, then in the email itself, send out a list of times. Send out, you know, uh, here's a great time for me. You know, if that works for you, write back. Otherwise, let me know with three other suggestions that work for you, and I'll let you know which of those three actually work for me. Uh, but actually tell them, send me three times that work for you, because then instead of, like, they'll send you one, and then you'll have to send back, oh, no, that one doesn't work. Or 
Get rid of all that crap. Use doodle.com. If you're not using this, go over there. I have a paid account, but the free accounts work just fine. And all of a sudden, when you're trying to set up a meeting with four people, uh, this entire process becomes much easier than the ridiculous email chain back and forth. Like literally 40 emails to set up one stupid meeting. Just use doodle.com. Tell everyone you know, please use doodle.com. Send them doodles. Use doodle.com. There's other services out there that do the same thing. Apple has, I think, made one of their own. It's not as good as doodle.com, but use this. I'm not taking money from these people. It just, just makes my life easier. All right, the next step, close the loop beforehand. Uh, we recently had an opening at our uh, ECMO conference, which, by the way, was friggin' incredible, and uh, we're just opening up tickets for the next iteration. If you're interested in an ECMO course that will blow your mind, all eCPR, learn to cannulate, go to reanimateconference.com. But we had an opening. Someone had to cancel due to a family emergency. So I sent out an email saying we have this opening. If you want it, email me. And like as soon as I sent it, I'm like, oh, you idiot. You didn't close the loop. Because what I should have said in that email to stave off a hundred emails saying, is it, is it still open? Is it still open? Is it still open? Is at the end of that email, I should have written, write me back. And if you don't hear back from me, it's because we've already filled the spot. And therefore, people know if I don't get an email back, it's because the spot is filled and they don't have to send a follow-up email and I don't have to answer those follow-up emails saying, oh, sorry, it's filled. And I, so I just like wasted 30 minutes of my life because I didn't close the loop beforehand. So do that. Close the loop beforehand in any way you can. Spending the 30 seconds up front to think about making your email better is going to save you so much time on the back end. The last thing I'll say, and this is totally self-serving, is regarding the email sent to me, look, if you're going to ask me a question, please do, send me questions, but make it easy to answer. Like, don't, don't send me a question that requires me sending you back, like, a, a three-page email. I'm just not going to be able to do that. I'd love to, but I get 1,000 emails a day. The chances of me doing that are nil. So if you have a question and I can answer it in like two sentences, chances are you're going to get a response. And if I have to answer it in two paragraphs, chances are you're not. I mean, basically, if you could fit your question on Twitter, I'm not saying you have to. You could email it to me through the MCRIC contact. But if you could fit your question on Twitter, good chances can be answered. If you can't, good chances not. Though I might do it in a podcast or a we or what have you. Um, and then please, make sure it's not something you just look up on the web, look up in a regular resource. You know, I'm arrogant enough to say my time's valuable, and I'm not Google. If you could web search this stuff, don't, don't ask me. Ask me stuff that only I could answer or only, like, you know, a few people could answer. And then please... Make sure it's not already answered on the MCRIT site because that's, you know, yes, I could be your, your, your MCRIT search engine and find the episode and tell you that, but that, that's, that's not the best use of my time. It's not the best use of your time. So make sure we haven't discussed it. And look, I know no search functionality is perfect. I might have done an episode and it's just not coming up and I'll, I'll answer you if that's the case. But, but please, you know, realize that emails kind of suck. Email is like the worst invention ever. Like it used to be there was this barrier to importance because people would have to get on the phone and talk to you to ask you something or, or ask something of you. And now that's gone. Email's too easy. You know, it's asynchronous. It's, it's easy to send out stuff. And it turns out like you could divide society into two 
basic groups. And there's one that like feels every request needs to be considered so seriously and needs to be looked at as, wow, this is my friend. I might have to say yes, even though I want, don't want to do it. And there's other people that are just like, I'm going to send out like any request that comes to my mind because if they don't like it, they'll just say no, because that's what I would do. And it doesn't bother me to say no. So if you're like a bothers you to say no person, then getting requests is a real burden. If it's like, ah, no, I got no problem saying no to anyone, you know, I'll send out, then those people send out a thousand requests because they're like, ah, it doesn't take them anything. They'll just say no. I don't even expect a yes. In fact, 99.9% of my brain says they're going to say no, but maybe they'll say yes, so I'll send out these requests. And now if you listen to the podcast for any length of time, you know I'm in the category of like, I consider any request sent to me very seriously. And I ask myself, do I have to accept because this person's a friend or because they really, you know, it's meaningful to them. And therefore, I don't send out many requests at all because I look at the requests I get and I'm like, oh, wow, I got to seriously consider this. So if you're one of those people that like, ah, I don't, requests don't bother me because saying no is the easiest thing in the world. Just think about the fact that like a lot of the population may not be you, may be different. So, and consider accordingly. All right, I've rattled on way too long. So I will end this here. All right, Scott Weingart, MCRIP Podcast, saying, get some stuff done. Hey there, on Deeper Reflection listeners. Before I disappear, in addition to podcasting, I am a physician and clinician performance coach. And that means I work with clients to deal with issues of burnout, to deal with issues of not being as happy as they'd like at their job, but also on the positive side. I work with people that are already performing at an amazing level, but they want to increase their productivity, their performance, their joy in life, their what we call eudaimonia, their flourishing. And so from all these different bents in a wide variety of possible situations, uh, I could work with you to make your life better. If that sounds interesting, if that sounds appealing, if it sounds like something that would make your life better, both in your job and outside it, then get in touch at mcrit.org slash coach. That's E-M-C-R-I-T dot org slash coach. And that'll take you to the page where you'll see all the variety of coaching that I offer and how to take the next step to make your life better. So mcrit, E-M-C-R-I-T dot org slash coach. Bye. Bye.